The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. Wall Street waking up to a rate shock ahead of twin testimonies this week from two key Federal Reserve officials. China is locking down again, this time in a key port city just outside Beijing as COVID continues to keep a chokehold on the global supply chain. Also this morning, high stakes talks in Geneva as the U.S. tries to de-escalate the situation at the Russia-Ukraine border, plus catering to the ultra high net worth buyer. A first on CNBC interview with the CEO of Rolls-Royce Motor Cars coming up. And then later on, Elon Musk jacking up the price for that full self-driving experience for Tesla. It is Monday, January 10th, 2022, and you are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning and welcome. I am Dominic Chiu in for Brian Sullivan today, kicking off your Monday morning with U.S. stock futures generally positive-ish. You can see right now the S&P 500 is, well, now it's slightly negative. The S&P is implied lower by just about one point. The Dow Jones higher by now down by one point. And the Nasdaq implied lower by roughly 11. So just about flat. We were vacillating between gains and losses. Now, the S&P and the Nasdaq coming off a four-day losing streak. The Nasdaq coming off its worst week since February, by the way. This is all about rates this morning as the 10-year note yield hits its highest level in two years. Right now, you can see that 10-year note yield just hovering a little below 1.8%, 1.792. The two-year Treasury note yield about 88 basis points or 0.88%. This is all ahead of two key congressional testimonies with Jay Powell and Lael Brainerd as the central bank prepares for its first rate hike in years. A rough week also for precious metals as well. Gold and silver seeing their worst week since November. Currently, you can see right now, over the course of the last week or so period, COMEX gold down about two-tenths of one percent and silver down about one and three-quarters percent. Checking on the cryptocurrency side of things, you can see just a little bit of movement here in Bitcoin. Still down about one and a half percent, 41,787 the last trade there. Ether down about one and three-quarters percent, 3144 the last trade there. Now, the overnight action in Asia with Japan closed for a holiday, you can kind of see, generally speaking, more on the green side of things. The Shanghai Composite overall, just about one half of one percent gains there and the Hang Seng in Hong Kong north of one percent as well. So keep an eye on those Asian markets. And then we'll spin that globe around to what's happening with the early trade on the European side of things. Like us here in the U.S., flat to slightly lower at this stage here. You can see the German DAX off about one quarter of one percent. Just about flat to slightly lower for the FTSE 100 in the U.K. and the CAC in France down about one quarter of one percent as well. Now to some of this morning's top stories. The current COVID wave, largely driven by the Omicron variant, has likely peaked in some parts of the U.S. This is according to Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who says some East Coast cities are, quote, probably peaking right now. 
He adds that other parts of the country where Omicron hasn't become as prevalent yet, such as the Midwest and the Plains states, still have a couple weeks to go. Sticking with the pandemic, researchers in Cyprus have reportedly claimed to have discovered a strain of the coronavirus that combines the Omicron and Delta variants. That's according to Bloomberg. Officials at the University of Cyprus say that they found 25 cases of the Deltacron strain. You see what happened there. The team says it is still too early to tell whether there are more cases of that strain or what impacts it might have. And Senator Joe Manchin has apparently pulled his $1.8 trillion spending offer for President Biden's Build Back Better package. That's according to The Washington Post. Manchin telling reporters that he is no longer in talks with the White House. The Post adds that he has also privately signaled he's not interested in approving any legislation like the current iteration of that Build Back Better plan. Well, back to the markets, which are digesting the latest jobs report from Friday and looking ahead to tomorrow's key inflation data. The 10-year Treasury note yield also very much in focus as yields have been steadily increasing throughout the course of this start of the year. Joining us now is Ben Emmons, Managing Director of Global Macro Strategy at Medley Global Advisors, who is laying out Wall Street's good, bad and ugly themes to kick off 2022. I feel very Clint Eastwood-esque right now. So, Ben, take us through what the market narrative will be this year. Morning, Dom. Yeah, this idea of good, bad, and ugly is about, of course, technology, the tanking treasury, and take inflation, right? And, you know, there seems to be this dynamic in the market that every time the tanking yield goes up, technology goes down, in anticipation there will be Fed tightening responding to this high inflation, which comes out tomorrow, <clears throat> probably, you know, again, higher at 7% or maybe higher for headline inflation. So the market is preparing for a tighter environment. I will say, though, Dom, that although that can lead to choppiness in, in equity markets, the recent examples of history in, say, 2017-18 or even 2014-15 does show that equities can coexist with rising rates, ultimately, because if the Fed is successful, inflation will start to moderate as the inflation response to higher interest rates this year. So, so Ben, I mean, is it, is it possible for, for investors to be constructive on the U.S. markets in the face of what a lot of folks are anticipating to be multiple rate increases. I believe I was reading a note by Goldman Sachs. They're looking for four rate increases throughout the course of this year. Can you still be optimistic about markets, given the fact that tightening is going to happen? So I take comfort in that as inflation is much higher than we had in 2015 when we lift off with rates, that, yes, you could actually be somewhat constructive in U.S. equities for that reason. You know, if those rate hikes, say four, if that's the case, would impact inflation and bring that inflation down, it ultimately would be good for spending and real incomes, right? So that I think in a, in a backdrop where the economy is still very strong, as we saw on Friday, payroll report was actually at full employment. So I think for that reason, you can be remain positive on equities. On the other hand, there's also a lot of global opportunity, I think, against this rate rise we're seeing in the United States coming through. I think, for example, of emerging markets may be very different this time than previously emerging markets could perform better um, because of already having seen tightening there. So constructive in U.S. equities, but also in emerging markets. What's the most compelling trade? You mentioned those emerging markets. Is there a compelling trade for you right now? I mean, it, we, we all know diversification is key, but what do you think is going to be the real, real outperformer? Is it that EM trade? I would call it one of the outperformers. I think if you look at the United States, 
you know, the small caps have interestingly shown resilience over the last number of weeks as we're starting to digest this rate rise uh, scenario. So I think that's the other compelling trade. And then lastly, you do stay somewhat defensive in this environment. So I've always been on the more materials, energy and, and healthcare side as well. So I think those three combined, merger markets, healthcare and small caps, I think are good thematic ideas going into this first quarter digesting then a higher interest rate probably by the end of this quarter. All right, Ben Emmons at Medley Global Advisors. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Thank you. When we come back on the show, big week for biotech as companies continue to grapple with an ever-evolving COVID-19 virus. What investors should expect at the annual J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference, which kicks off, by the way, today. Plus, this government program was supposed to be a lifeline for the struggling live arts industry, which is facing new cancellations in the wake of that COVID Omicron variant. But many small businesses are saying they were mistakenly denied aid. The CNBC investigation is coming up. And then later on, new COVID lockdowns in China at a key port city just outside of Beijing. We are live with a look at the new measures and potential impact on an already strained global supply chain. Very busy hours still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this break. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back. The annual J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference begins today. The industry's largest healthcare investment symposium will be virtual again this year due to concerns about the Omicron variant for COVID. Biotech will be a central theme of the conference. That sector has underperformed the broader market over the past year. The iShares Biotech ETF, ticker IBB, is now down more than 11%, you can see there. Let's discuss what's ahead in the new year with Laura Chico. She's the senior vice president of biotech equity research over at Wedbush. Laura, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Let's talk about whether or not biopharma, biotech, pharmaceuticals will be something other than about COVID-19 in 2022. Thanks, Dominic, for having me. I think it's a great question. In your introductory remarks, you mentioned that this is often a busy week of the year, a lot of anticipation and news flow. I think there's a lot of room for optimism for 2022 as a whole. Um, you know, the MBI is down about 14% from its highs in August, but there's a couple of drivers behind that. I think you can look at items such as IPO issuance, uh, declining M&A activity, declining catalyst activity. 
So as we look ahead to 2022, I think at least on the catalyst activity front, we are projecting to see a return to normal levels of phase two, phase three readouts, which I think bodes well for the sector. So, so Laura, many of us are, are not biotech specialists when it comes to investing. These days, ETFs have made it very easy just to buy baskets like we just showed in some of those ETF charts. I, I wonder, though, you're a specialist in this. Is, is there any place in particular that you think does outperform certain parts of the industry? Is it certain types of companies, certain types of anticipated or experimental treatments? Yeah, I think there's a couple therapeutic areas you know, outside the COVID realm that are actually really exciting. For example, in the CNS or neurology space, we've seen early stage investments increase by about 10x just since 2019. A couple names in this area that we're most excited about are Corona Therapeutics and Xenon Pharmaceuticals. I think as we step back and think about what drivers or characteristics will be important for biotech stocks in 2022, I think those names that have good cash balance sheets, uh, strong catalyst runway, or catalyst lineups are going to fare the best. So when you look at it, we, we often talk about the, 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 the pipelines for many of these companies. I mean, early stage ones, that for, you know, for better or worse, some, some investors view it as binary. You know, you get one drug that either makes it or doesn't make it. That, there, there goes the company. Is there any place in particular where you feel as though there's a line of, of, of experimental medication or treatment that seems to be more promising than the others? Is it, is it oncology this year versus COVID-19? Is it, is it orphan drugs? Is it something else? Uh, That's a great question, Dominic. You know, I think oncology always dominates a good proportion of the drugs and development within the biotech space. I think there's reasons for optimisms, as I said, in the neurology space with advances in imaging, our understanding of the underlying science. Nephrology or kidney disease is another area where there's tremendous unmet need. But I think we're starting to see some signs of hope here for advancing drugs more rapidly with surrogate endpoints as well. All right. So the call on biotech there, very important week as well. Laura Chico at Wedbush, thank you very much. Have a great day. Thanks, Dominic. All right. CNBC will have coverage all day from the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference, virtual as it is, and some big interviews as well. Coming up on Squawk Box, Moderna CEO Stefan Bansell, just after 7 a.m. Eastern time coming up. And then Pfizer CEO Albert Borla, just after 8 a.m. Eastern time. And then later on, Squawk on the Street, an exclusive interview with Gilead chairman and CEO Daniel O'Day as well. A very, very big day from that J.P. Morgan virtual healthcare conference. Still on deck for the show, a new development in the Novak Djokovic Australia saga, plus the global EV race and how one luxury automaker is catering to a very specific clientele. And then later on, the loss of an entertainment icon. Worldwide Exchange is back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
Welcome back. I'm Francis Rivera with your news update. We begin with breaking overnight, mourning the death of America's dad, Bob Saget. The comedian and actor passed away in his hotel room at the Ritz-Carlton in Orlando yesterday. The circumstances surrounding his death are unknown. Generations grew up with Saget. He started hosting America's Funniest Home Videos in 1989, played the beloved TV dad, Danny Tanner, in the 1990s sitcom Full House, and was a raunchy stand-up comedian. His Full House castmates were shocked, as you can imagine. John Stamos wrote, I am broken. I am gutted. Candace Cameron Bure tweeted, Bob was one of the best human beings I've ever known in my life. And Dave Coulier wrote, I love you, Bob. Your forever brother, Dave. Bob Saget was 65 years old. Novak Djokovic is staying in Australia for now after a successful appeal of his visa being canceled. A federal judge ordered Djokovic's passport be returned and the tennis star be allowed to leave the hotel where he was detained. The judge confirmed Djokovic was present with his lawyers at an undisclosed location at the time of the ruling. Court documents confirmed Djokovic was unvaccinated and his lawyers argued a positive COVID test last month led to the Australian Open's organization and the organizing group Tennis Australia giving him a medical exemption. Overnight, Chicago leaders announced that public school classes will be canceled for a fourth day. Negotiations between the city and the teachers union stretched into a second week after officials rejected the union's request to go back to remote learning. Well, now to the NFL and a high-stakes showdown in Las Vegas on the final Sunday of the regular season. The Chargers scored twice in the final minutes to force overtime and potentially save their season. After trading field goals, Las Vegas gambled on one final drive and Daniel Carlson's boot sent them to the playoffs. The Raiders earned the win over the Chargers 35-32. And finally, baseball history on the horizon, according to a report by The Athletic. Rachel Bokovitz will manage the low-A team for the New York Yankees. Well, that would make her the first female skipper affiliated with a pro team. According to the report, the 34-year-old will lead the Tampa Tarpons. Don, those are your headlines for Monday. We set it back to you. All right, thank you very much, Francis Rivera, for those headlines. Well, the live events and arts industry is facing new closures, postponements, and cancellations in the wake of the ongoing COVID Omicron spike. The industry was the first to shutter its doors during the initial COVID outbreak and is still struggling to stay open. A small business administration program has given out more than $13 billion in grants to help bridge the gap. But many say the program is riddled with inconsistencies and did not help enough. Our own Kate Rogers has more in a big CNBC investigation. Here's our timeline. When Amanda Kennedy first heard about the shuttered venue operators grant program, she thought it might provide a much needed salvation for her community theater. You know, something that that we desperately needed. Kennedy is treasurer of the studio theater in Little Rock, Arkansas. The nonprofit closed its doors like so many at the onset of the pandemic. We got our application in and we're very confident. For more than three months, she heard nothing. Then came a denial. I didn't see that coming at all. We practically had, you know, had the funds um, expended in our minds and our budgets because it was pretty much a sure thing that it was coming. The SBA told Kennedy the theater was denied because it doesn't pay its performers. But as a nonprofit, according to SBA guidelines, that shouldn't have made the theater ineligible. 
Yet the Argenta Community Theater, five minutes away in North Little Rock, received nearly $150,000 in grants. And the Royal Players, 30 minutes away in Benton, Arkansas, got more than $116,000. Both are nearly identical in business models, according to Kennedy. Mike Savis runs Superfan Live, a concert and events promotion business, selling VIP experiences to fans for world-famous artists like Journey and Metallica. We met him in Philadelphia, where he was working on a Genesis tour. His application was denied for more than half a million dollars in aid. A subsequent appeal and comprehensive review upheld that decision. How did you feel when you got the first denial? That was probably the most uh, crushing moment of the SVOG process because I really thought I was going to get it. Um, and, and again, I had made some, um, not empty promises, but I had made some hopeful promises to staff and vendors. On Facebook, the group SVOG Declines has nearly 400 members whose applications were denied. The chief complaint from many is a lack of understanding of why they were denied in the first place. Truth be told, I was this close to bankruptcy. I had about five days of runway left before I was going to really re reconsider whether or not I pay bills, pay staff, or tell the artists I don't have the money to pay them. While some applicants believe their denials were incorrect, thousands of entities have benefited from the program, which has approved more than $13 billion in aid so far. Recipients include many famed Broadway shows and their tours, like Hamilton, accessing millions of dollars in grants. The SBA said more than 5,000 applicants were invited to appeal and approximately 3,000 accepted. In addition, some 2,000 recipients were invited to have their funding awards reconsidered and some 800 grantees accepted. The SBA did not specify how many businesses had their decisions overturned. I made the decision to open up an appeals process as well as include reconsideration of awarded amounts so that everyone could have their fair shot at these funds. SBA Administrator Isabel Guzman sat down with us during an event in New York City promoting the program's success. Two applicants might look exactly the same, but there are complex eligibility criteria. And so from externally, it might look like they're uh, you know, the same type of applicant, but they may not turn out to be. And it could be things like, for example, a museum. One has uh, actual fixed seating, which is a requirement, and the other one doesn't. Meanwhile, those behind the scenes who have been advocating for broader aid beyond SVOG are still hopeful Congress will come through. We did our job to protect people and keep people safe and now they're not helping us. The Live Events Coalition formed in April 2020, representing more than 1 million small businesses with 12 million employees worth $872 billion in economic impact. Some 92% of its small business members who represent trade shows, corporate events, weddings, local county fairs, and more were left out of relief. And it's really hard to watch all of my colleagues go through this. These are people's livelihoods that they've worked on for decades. And no one, no one is listening. A person familiar with the federal grant process told CNBC that while grant applications are reviewed by individuals adhering to a standardized criteria, individual application reviewers may utilize varying thresholds or differing data interpretations throughout application screening, programmatic or financial review processes. Each could impact the grant awarding phase, which in turn could lead to some mistaken denials. The agency is now facing more than two dozen lawsuits from businesses who were denied but believe that they were eligible. That's according to Mayor Law Firm, which is representing many of the plaintiffs. The agency said Dom cannot comment on pending litigation.
Back over to you. So, 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 Kate, I mean, what is what is the hope for these lawsuits and the businesses taking on this small business administration? And are there any plans for additional aid for those shuttered businesses or, or those who are left out or denied from the program? Sure, Dom. So those who are suing the SBA are looking for two things. They're looking for answers because many believe that their denials and appeals that held up those decisions were very unclear. They don't understand why they were denied. They don't feel like they got a detailed response. So they're hoping to understand why potentially access that money, because you have to remember there's $2 billion still left unallocated in this fund. So that's one part. As for the businesses who were completely left out, I think there's hope particularly in the House because there's bipartisan support to get some targeted aid to them. Other uh, differing avenues rather would be, you know, a plus up on the restaurant revitalization fund that could help the catering segment of that business. But they're really looking for broad targeted aid that would impact all different parts of the live events coalition, because essentially they're saying, you know, without us, when the world does reopen in terms of live events, you need all of these people to make this happen. So many of these businesses are going under the COVID variants are still continuing to spread. Uh, we started working on this story when Delta was going on. Now we're in Omicron. These businesses are still struggling. They need help, and they're really hoping that uh, Congress will listen and get, get them some aid. Our Kate Rogers with a big CNBC Investigates piece. For more, by the way, go to CNBC.com. Any small business owner would take some interest in what's going on there. Kate Rogers, we appreciate it. Thank you. As we head out to break, checking the price of Bitcoin as it dips below the 42,000 mark. Right now, you can see there 41,897, roughly down about one and a half percent. Across the board, though, cryptocurrencies in the red right now. Ether, 3155. We'll be right back. Stocks looking to bounce back after a rocky first week for the new trading year as investors turn their attention towards key inflation data and testimony from Fed Chair Jerome Powell. Foreign policy also in focus as the U.S. and Russia kick off high-stakes talks around Ukraine, how it could impact President Biden's domestic agenda as Congress gets back to work. And China implementing strict lockdown measures in one city amid a COVID outbreak as the country tries to take control of the situation weeks before Yes, the Winter Olympics kick off. It's Monday, January 10th. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I am Dominic Chu in for Brian Sullivan this morning. And here is how stock futures are shaping up halfway through the 5 a.m. Eastern time hour out here in the New York area. Right now, it's we'll call it steady. The Dow is implied higher by 23 points. The S&P by just one point. And the Nasdaq implied lower by 13. So mixed but generally more stable. Checking the 10-year Treasury note yield, we're hitting its highest levels in nearly around two years at this stage, currently 1.778% there. As you can see, though, some moves higher generally over the course of the last week. Inflation very much front and center for a lot of investors out there. By the way, looking at that particular note yield, we've been moving up very consistently over the course of the past week. Now, to the Biden administration kicking off high-stakes talks with Russia today over the ongoing situation with Ukraine. Both sides downplaying prospects of a potential agreement with roughly 10,000 Russian troops gathered along the Ukrainian border for what the White House is calling preparations for an invasion. Meanwhile, the White House also keeping a close watch on the violent situation in Kazakhstan, with Russia sending reinforcements into that country to help the Kazakh government reassert its control there. 
More than 160 people have been killed and nearly 8,000 detained during demonstrations over government corruption and poor economic conditions. As if that wasn't enough for the Biden administration, back here at home, the House returns to Capitol Hill as Congress kicks off its new session with Democrats facing a lengthy to-do list, including trying to pass that Build Back Better bill. For more, let's bring in Brian Gardner, chief Washington policy strategist over at Stiefel Financial. Brian, I listed off so many things just in the last minute or so here. What exactly is going to be the key issue that will dominate the Biden administration in the coming weeks? What's the focus going to be on for them front and center? Good morning, Dom. I think they would like to have the domestic agenda be front and center. Um, That's what gets uh, voters excited. That's what leads to electoral wins or losses. Um, But um, as President Biden is finding out, all presidents find out, no matter what you want to do domestically, often foreign policy trumps all and dictates what the agenda is, is going to look like. So I think for in the short term, um, certainly, there will still be work going on behind the scenes on a domestic agenda, but the focus of the administration has to be internationally at this point. So if it is, if that's the fire that you need to put out first, is it Russia, Ukraine? Is it China with its situation with us? Is it is it in the Middle East right now? What exactly is going to be the thing that really dominates? It, it seems like right now it has to be Russia, Ukraine. I, I agree for two reasons. One, it, it, it just is the most acute problem right now, a acute issue uh, with Russian troops on the border and actually in uh, eastern Ukraine. Uh, China is a longer term problem. China is not going to be solved short term. It's going to be with us for an, ex, uh, an extended period of time. But the Russia issue is front and center because Putin has made it front and center. So for now, it, it is the Russia issue. So, so, Brian, uh, over the course of, I mean, arguably more than a decade now, we, we've had a number of geopolitical concerns that have that have raised their heads each time the markets and the U.S. economy broadly has shaken them off, it, whether it was the Middle East, whether it was Iran, Iraq, whether it, whether it was North Korea. What is to say that this doesn't blow over as well or is this time different? I don't know if this time is different. I, I suspect it is the same. Um, I, I think the real risk to the to the markets is that there is a bit of complacency that this time won't be different. Um, so if if it does, if if the situation in Eastern Europe um, blows up because it is so close to major major economic hubs in Central and Western Europe, I, I think it has the potential. Um, to, to affect the markets in ways we haven't seen in quite some time. Um, that being said, I, I, I also think that this is a longer term strategy by Putin. It's not just trying to invade Ukraine for the for the sake of land. It's it's trying to disrupt um, and divide the U.S. from Europe. So um, to me, this doesn't this doesn't get resolved immediately. And so the markets actually may take some comfort in that because if troops don't actually go across the border, it's just another one of those issues that you just listed, Dom, that that doesn't impact the markets immediately. So, so Brian, uh, before we let you go here, there's this notion right now that 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 President Biden's overall kind of aura in Washington, D.C. isn't what it was. We, we have a lot of polling and survey data over the course of the last couple of months, few months here 
that has shown his his approval ratings dip, his disapproval ratings rise. Is there a scenario right now that could play out for the Biden administration to get some of those points back? What needs to happen? Or is this going to be something that they're going to be fighting for 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 weeks, if not months, going into midterms? So first, I, I do think it's something that they're going to be fighting for months. I don't think this is going to go away. Uh, any of the international issues that we just that you just listed. That being said, um, chaos creates opportunity. Um, I'm not predicting that the Biden administration will be able to turn this into a political win, but the their opportunity is there for them to look strong on the international stage. And if they're able to seize that, uh, given the problems that the administration has gone through in its first year on the border in Afghanistan with COVID, not getting some of the domestic agenda through, this is the opportunity to pivot. Um, they haven't had this kind of opportunity in a while um, to, to really pivot and, and put a win on the board. If they can do that, then the president's standing could recover and better approval, job approval numbers helps him get a domestic agenda through. Tough to see that happening right now because of the track record of the last year. Sure. But the opportunity is there for them. All right. Brian Gardner over at Stiefel Financial with the latest on Washington, D.C. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Thanks, Tom. To the situation now in China, as we just mentioned, and the race by officials there to contain the spread of COVID-19. Residents in the key port city of Tianjin, just 30 minutes outside of the capital of Beijing, facing new restrictions as authorities try to stop a new Omicron outbreak that could further disrupt the global supply chain. The new measures being implemented just weeks before, of course, the Winter Olympics kick off there in Beijing. Yunus Yun is live from Beijing to tell us a little bit more about what's happening. How serious is the lockdown, Yunus? Well, Dom, the Omicron, with the Omicron outbreak just about half an hour away, Beijing is on high alert. I'm outside of a vaccination center right now, which is urging residents here to make sure to get their shots. So what we know so far is that there are two cases confirmed in the port city of Tianjin, 38 suspected, two in the central city of Anyang that have been linked to Tianjin. And Anyang is an area in an area where there are a lot of electronics made, including iPhones. Uh, what we don't know so far is the source of this outbreak. Also, how long Omicron has been circulating in the community, because officials say that these infections are what they called three generations, which means that uh, they have been traveling person to person at least for two rounds. Now, the uh, port city of Tianjin is uh, rape, uh, ra ramping up its, its mass, mass testing. 40, 14 million people are to be tested by the end of today, midnight. 76,000 have been quarantined. The city has already uh, suspended its bus services, uh, some of its flights, subway services, its impartial lockdown. Authorities are also requiring permits um, by uh, for anybody who wants to leave the city from their employers or from community organizers. Now, Tianjin Port itself has made a statement saying that so far operations are normal, though it is ramping up testing for its workers, because as you could imagine, uh, Dom, the, the port is very concerned about uh, the potential impact this could have on the operations and the overall supply chain. So, so the, the supply chain is obviously a very key issue for a lot of folks when it comes to port cities li like where you're at right now. I wonder also, this is a very high profile time for Beijing coming up. 
the Winter Olympics, Winter Olympics put them on a center stage. We saw what happened with the kind of postponement of the Summer Olympics and the complications there. How seriously does China have to kind of deal with the image that it's portraying with this, given the fact that we are just days away from a very, very large sporting event on a global scale? Right. The, Im the image and that reputation is incredibly important for Beijing and for President Xi Jinping himself. He's repeatedly over the past several days said that uh, this event, the Olympics, is going to be important for China um, as well as for the rest of the world, but especially for China and its image. Uh, he's really been doubling down on making sure that uh, the Olympic Games are going to be pulled off without a hitch, even though this Omicron outbreak is uh, so close by to where the venues um, are going to be uh, hosting all of these Olympic and sporting events. And, and, and before we let you go, really quickly, how serious is it in your mind? Do you see a lot of the kind of tangible evidence of those lockdowns happening? Absolutely. Um, just in the past couple of days, even around my com community and my compound, uh, we're starting to see a lot of those uh, same uh, measures, such as uh, temperature uh, checks, as well as uh, the vaccination centers, really trying to urge people to take this potential outbreak of Omicron very seriously. All right, Eunice in Beijing, thank you very much for that. We appreciate it. Coming up on the show, a first on CNBC interview as the CEO of Rolls-Royce Motors Cars breaks down a record 2021 year for the luxury automaker. But first, as we head out to break, some of your other top stories this morning. Tesla is raising the price of its premium driver assistance package in the U.S. CEO Elon Musk announcing the move on Twitter, saying the option will climb from $10,000 to $12,000 starting next week. Musk also says subscriptions for the package will also cost more as well. Ford is warning its dealers over the upcoming launch of its Ford F-150 Lightning EV. According to a letter from the automaker to dealers, it is telling them not to upsell reservations for the public EV pickup truck. It also wants customers to sign a contract preventing them from reselling it within a year. Worldwide Exchange is back after this. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. The auto world coming off a week of major disruption from Ford doubling its production targets for its all-electric F-150 pickup truck and Chrysler saying it's going all-electric by the end of this decade to GM unveiling its own EV Silverado truck and even Sony throwing its hat in the ring on EVs as well. But there's another legacy car company that caters to an entirely different market, and it has electric ambitions of its own for the more luxury-oriented, very ultra-high net worth buyer. This is Rolls-Royce Motor Cars, of course. Joining me now in a first on CNBC interview is Rolls-Royce Motors Cars CEO Torsten Muller-Ottfoss. His company out with year-end results just this morning. Uh, thank you very much, Torsten, for joining us today. Let, let's talk about whether or not you feel confident Pleasure, in the coming year about your production goals over the course of the last year being met and then what they are for this coming year. Yeah, Dominic, uh, thanks first of all for having me. And uh, I'm uh, quite, let's say, optimistic about 2022. We have a long-lasting order book uh, nearly until the end of this year. And for that reason, you could even say that the entire year is already more or less booked. And uh, that is uh, great to see. And uh, I think we see strong, unprecedented demand all over the world. 
And for that reason, I'm pretty, let's say, confident that we can also fulfill all the demand worldwide when it comes to producing our masterpieces. You, you deal, Torsten, with a very different set of buyers than the traditional, say, Toyota, GM, Ford-type markets. How exactly has the, the supply chain impacted you? You're not making the same number of cars as those other automakers are, but, but I have to imagine that some of the supply chain issues have still reverberated in your side of the business as well. Yeah, Dominic, first of all, allow me to say that we are not really in the automotive business. Sounds funny. Yes, we are building cars. Uh, I call them pieces of art. Uh, but we are definitely in the luxury goods business. And that is very different in terms of client behavior, also client expectations. And yes, obviously, we also need semiconductors, chips uh, for building our cars. And you might know that we are part of the bigger BMW group, and that has allowed us also to secure all chips we needed worldwide. That was a big relief and also a big help from our parent company, BMW Group. So when it comes to electric vehicle ambitions, the, the field is getting crowded. It, it used to kind of just be Tesla. Now every other legacy automaker is getting involved. How much will Rolls-Royce focus on electric vehicles in the, say, next five to seven years with all the competition ramping up on the luxury side of things? I think the electric uh, drivetrain is for us definitely the future. And I announced already we will launch Spectre uh, end of 2023. So first clients will take delivery of the car. And then step by step, we will electrify the entire range of our products. And by 2030, we are fully electric. And I think electrification fits perfect to the brand. It's silent. It's talky. Uh, it's something we have investigated for many years already, knowing that our clients like it. Uh, we were not so far uh, satisfied with uh, charging times, range, and so on and so forth. But now it's the time to come to the market. And I think rightly so. So I'm personally extremely confident about us going full electric. And Torsten, before we let you go, your, your end of the market with your average vehicle costing around four to seven hundred thousand dollars in that range. Your clientele is, is more acute, acutely concerned with what's happening with the markets. Do you feel as though your dealership model and your clientele feel worried about what's going to happen with the markets in the future, given some of the uncertainties around global economies and central bank policy? Yeah, I mean, I mean, we are, uh, let's say, observing that closely, Dominic, uh, for very good reasons, because we are not immune against any of what I call recessions or whatever that might happen worldwide. So the stock market is definitely for us also an indicator and a driving force also for our business. So we are watching it. Uh, that's the only thing I can say. So let's see and let's keep fingers crossed that this is not derailing in any way, uh, that it keeps going from strength to strength, definitely this year, but also the next years to come, I hope. All right. Rolls-Royce Motor Car CEO Torsten Muller-Ottfoss, thank you very much. We appreciate it and good luck, sir. Thanks. Worldwide Exchange is back right after this. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange, back to the markets. Futures right now stable with the Dow implied higher by just two points. The 10-year yield also in focus right now as that metric has been soaring lately. It's already up big so far this year, currently 1.77%. Joining us now is Lindsay Bell, Chief Markets and Money Strategist over at Ally Invest. She's also a CNBC contributor. Lindsay, this is a market that didn't get off to a great start over the course of the last week. Are you worried at all about 2022? 
Yeah, I mean, the first week of January was a little bit rough, but we did get that Santa Claus rally. So I think investors are kind of reassessing their risk as they enter the new year. And that focus really is on those rising rates and and the Fed's plan to come off their easy money policies that they've been on over the last two years. So I think investors are really focused on that. The first half of the year could be a little bit choppy while while we try and figure out those two big uncertainties. Um, But I think when you look past that into the second half of the year, there still are a lot of positives underlying the economy. We have a really strong consumer. Um, We've got earnings growth that looks reasonable and could be beat. And valuations have come down quite a bit, even though they're still trading at a premium versus historical prices. That could be okay if interest rates don't get out of control and inflation does begin to subside. And then finally, the third and final final thing that I'm looking at for the outlook is really that while the Fed is removing liquidity, corporations are putting liquidity back into the market with their spending through capbacks, buybacks, and dividends. So that could be something that a lot of people haven't really thought about in the year ahead. So if that's the case, Lindsay, what parts of the market are poised to benefit the most from that corporate liquidity being injected into the system? Is it still going to be those mega cap companies that buy back billions and billions of their own stock like Apple and and Microsoft and others? Or is it going to be on the smaller cap side of things as the economy continues to try to recover? Well, I think you're going to see a a dichotomy of both, okay? What we have seen so far is that those big mega cap companies like the financials and the technology, the higher growth sectors, the companies with really strong and reliable cash flow, they are already starting to commit to to bigger buyback programs and higher capbacks in the year ahead. And we would expect that to continue. But I think this is a real opportunity for the smaller cap companies, too, that have been able to continue to have cash on their balance sheet because they took advantage of the easy money programs that the beginning of the pandemic. And I think they have that opportunity as growth begins to pick up. We get, you know, we get out of this pandemic stage and into a new normal, maybe returning to the old normal where people are getting out and about again. Uh, the small cap companies will have opportunity. Lindsay, can the U.S. consumer saver investor at all stomach multiple Fed rate increases this year? Look, I think they can, but they have to come at a steady pace. They can't come super fast. In other words, the Fed, if they raise every meeting at a very quick pace, then then the stock market is going to wobble and it's it's going to underperform. But we have seen versus history if they are uh, if, if they're thoughtful and they they are communicating their their plans and they're able to raise rates at a stable at a stable pace, then the market can do just fine. Even if there's a little bit of rockiness and volatility around that first rate hike, we we can still see uh, a positive end to the year from a price performance perspective in the market. All right. Lindsay Bell or Ally Invest, thank you very much for the market thoughts. Have a nice week. All right. So let's check out what's happening with futures right now. You can see a very stable open implied right now. The Dow just by 10 points higher. Also, check out what's happening with cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin still right below that 42,000 mark, 41,813, the last trade there. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk Box picks up the market coverage coming up next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 